collective and good to be seen by all of you and to see your names uh, there in our little YouTube chat box. Uh, once again, like Lorenzo just talked about, here we are in the month of October coming into what will not only be us going into our you know, sixth year, but even uh, my uh, second year here with Collective where so much of my first year with all of you has been uh, in this in this median. Um, and so there's much to be celebrated about getting to be here with everyone, but at the same time, uh, also mourning uh, a little bit of that, but still really excited that I get to do all this and figure out how my iPad works. Well, let's get into it. Growing up, my brothers and I created a, what we could call taxonomy of cleanliness in what we described as dad clean and mom clean. Now this uh, divide, this hierarchy, this taxonomy, if you will, was built around our interpretation and application of the command that came from our parents, clean your rooms. Now, what dad clean meant for us was basically deep clean. When we referred to a dad clean, we meant deep clean. This was underneath your bed, making your bed, cleaning the closet, vacuuming the floor, organizing everything within your room, dusting if there needed to be dusting. Everything has a place. Every place has a thing. This is what it meant to dad clean. Now, on the other hand, we had what we referred to as mom clean, Now, mom clean was the bed being more or less made and nothing on the floor. As many mothers can attest, many of you watching right now, so often having a home that doesn't look like ground zero of an F5 tornado is win enough for the day. So it wasn't our mom's intent, but what we applied to the idea of mom clean, what we brought this out was more or less throw everything in the closet and under the bed. It was all based on our understanding of what mom and dad would be looking for when they walked into your room after they told you to clean it. The unfortunate turn of events, however, was when you mom cleaned your room only to have dad be the one that would come and check what you had done to your room. So if you had mom cleaned, you just thrown everything underneath your bed and in the closet and it looked great, maybe made the bed and then you invited dad to come in, he knew, he knew all about our mom clean ways. And so he would come and open up the closet door and he would look underneath the bed and he would just with his, you know, big, you know, as a little kid, dad's big arms that could reach places you didn't think he'd be able to. He pulls out shoes and socks and toys and out of the closet, pulls out everything that's there. And, and this is what would happen is dad would come in and pull it out out. Now, What's crazy is even today, decades later for me, I still practice this sort of mom clean, dad clean taxonomy, no longer referring him to that. But uh, the idea of this, what I and my brothers referred to as mom clean, of kind of just making everything look clean, but putting things wherever you could put them, is it now continues into my marriage, ongoing application and implications in what Aaron affectionately refers to, not as mom clean, but as stuffing. Each Friday, as I clean the house for the weekend, as I'm kind of, you know, juggling the kids while Aaron's working and also trying to get the house ready for the weekend, I hectically stuff mess into whatever cabinet, drawer, or closet is closest as I'm going at times. By the end, by Friday evening, as we're about to go into the weekend, the house appears clean, yet behind it all is a disorganized mess that only brings confusion and conflict in the week to come. And so here in this public forum, I publicly repent. I lament and confess of my stuffing ways and believe that by God's grace, he's not done with me yet. 
There is a taxonomy of cleanliness. Maybe you grew up with something like this within your home. Maybe not with your parents, but within certain days or certain weeks, there was a, a difference, a level, a hierarchy of what we were talking about when we talked about things being clean. Today, as we continue in Mark's gospel, as Lorenzo said, in our Discovering Jesus series, we're going to find a similar breakdown, a similar taxonomy of cleanliness at the center of a debate. But it's not Duplos and shoes and puzzle pieces that are being discussed. It's our hands, our hearts, our entire lives. And so today we're gonna pray and then we're gonna jump right into Mark chapter seven. Now we're jumping into Mark chapter seven from the beginning of Mark chapter six, jumping over that back half. And this is not because there's not anything good there. We've, we've actually preached on those two, uh, that, those couple of verses there twice in our Take Heart series earlier this year and in our Silence and Solitude. So we've spent some time in Mark six. So we're jumping into Mark seven today. We're gonna begin in verse one. I'm gonna pray and then we'll jump right into it. And as always, notes are there in the chat. Let me pray and then we'll jump right into it. Uh, Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the gospel of Mark. Thank you for the ways that you're consistently revealing yourself to us. And thank you for collective uh, that we've been here coming up on, on another year. And even for us coming on, on a year of being here in a part of this community. Uh, we're just grateful. And so we pray that you'd continue to reveal yourself, your son, your will, and all of that. And what it means for us today in Mark. In your name we pray, amen. Well, Mark chapter seven, beginning in verse one. Let's read together. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, being Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of Jesus's disciples ate with their hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. And so the Pharisees and the scribes, we've seen these characters multiple times now in the gospel of Mark. I've equated them to the religious highway patrol. Back in chapter two, they were uh, coming after Jesus for the people that he called friends, those he ate dinner with, these tax collectors and sinners. Later on in chapter two, they were picking on Jesus because he and his disciples weren't fasting like they thought he should. Later on in chapter two, they again, the religious highway patrol, the scribes and Pharisees were coming after Jesus because of uh, him not keeping Sabbath the way they wanted to. And then even in chapter three, this group accuses Jesus, all of his miracles is not being rooted in God, but rooted in the devil that he is possessed by him. And so here we are again with our religious highway patrol and they've got their radar guns fixed on Jesus. And this time what activates and sets off the alarm for them is his disciples eating with unwashed hands. Now in our COVID-19 moment, uh, we have a response very similar to the Pharisees for shame. How dare they, you know, sinners, dirty, dirty heathens or whatever. And, and this is the reaction that they're having. It's the same reaction that many of us might have if, if we were around family. We were just talking with someone that was, uh, had, was traveling and had been with some family and uh, they had watched a family member cough into their hand and then reach into a big bowl of carrots. And they were like, well, that's <laughs> no more carrots for me now. Like we have the same reaction to what the Pharisees are, are, are reacting to here. But what's interesting is they're doing it for a different reason. Mark explains in verse three, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash their hands. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots, copper vessels. It's all like cooking utensils, eating utensils, and then dining couches where they eat. 
So at the center of the conflict here with the Pharisees against Jesus and his disciples is not the issue of personal hygiene, but what Mark through this, you know, big, long parenthetical statement is this issue of the tradition of the elders. Now, what is this? The tradition of the elders. Over the generations of Israel, the Jewish people, their rabbis, their scribes, their elders handed down literally what the word tradition means in the Greek. They handed down their interpretation and their application of the scriptures. So this wasn't just what the Bible said, but they handed down this kind of additional commands around those commands as a way of helping the people of God apply those commands rightly. So a good example of this would be in the 10 commandments, the command to rest on the Sabbath day. And so the question is, well, what does it mean to rest? And so the scribes and the elders and the Pharisees handed down thousands of these other commands that carried out all the implications of what it means to rest, of not lighting candles or not starting fire, or, or if you do go for a walk, you can only walk this far. There were all of these additional commands that had been put to it. The idea being that the tradition of the elders was like a fence or a hedge that you put around something that you wanted to protect. So if everybody kept those tradition of the elders commands, we would never have to worry about the command in the middle of, you know, Sabbath being something that would be broken, right? So they set up this fence, these hedge laws is what we could call them. And so at the middle of the confrontation here, you know, the religious highway patrol with their radar guns, what they're going after is specifically the tradition of the elders as it relates to ritual washing and cleanliness, about cleanliness and uncleanliness, defilement and being holy or set apart. Now, this ritual washing of always washing your hands before you eat is, is good hygiene, like that, that, but that's not the issue they're going after. For them, it's about ritual purity. It was based in Leviticus that as the priests went to serve in the tabernacle, they would need to wash themselves appropriately as a sign and symbol of them then going into the presence of God, not defiling it or being in an unclean state, but pure. It's a picture of holiness. What the elders did over time is they applied those commands to the priest through those hedge laws onto all of Israel. So you wash your hands and you wash your utensils as Mark tells us here, because if those are defiled, they might defile the food that you eat. And if the food that you eat gets defiled, then it goes into you and you yourself are defiled. And therefore then you are not a pure person. And if that's happening at a huge rate within our society, Israel is not the pure people of God. So you can see that these hedge laws are not coming from necessarily a wrong place. I think sometimes we get down on the Pharisees. For them, they see a deep need for us to be the true people of God. And they're trying to add commands to help apply and think through that. And so for the Pharisees and scribes, Jesus is rejecting the tradition of the elders and in their perspective, with it, the commands of scripture themselves. And so they ask in verse four, the Pharisees and the scribes ask Jesus, why is it your disciples don't walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? There it is. That's the claim. That's the beep. They pull Jesus over. Do you have any idea how fast you're going? It's, this is the question that they ask. You know, you know what you're doing? Why is it? Explain to me why you think that this is okay. And so Jesus responds. Let's see what he says in verse six and eight as he continues. And Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, here it comes. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? So much for meek and mild Jesus. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. 
Yes, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. I mean, the, the frustration of Jesus is palpable. I mean, right from the get-go, you know, he just, he, he goes right after them. The surprise isn't though that he doesn't critique the hand. He doesn't, answer, why are you guys, why? and Jesus doesn't even respond to that. He just goes after them and he goes after in particular, the whole tradition system altogether. Underneath it all, he uses strong language of hypocrites and hypocrisy, which now we have all these addendums to it. In the original Greek that Mark's writing in, in the language of Jesus, it just means to be an actor, to be someone on stage, to be a play actor, that you are donning a part, you are wearing a mask, you are not what you really are, you're presenting. Jesus says, those that are following after the tradition of men at the expense, the leaving behind of the commandments of God. You claim and act to be the people of God, but you're actually just acting. But in reality, your heart is quite far from me. And this is a strong word. So let's see a little bit further. What's Jesus getting at here? He continues in verse nine. Jesus said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Then he quotes from Moses. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. And then so Moses said, but you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me, that's actually Corbin. That's, it's given to God, Mark tells us. What you're doing then is you're no longer permitting him to do anything for his father or mother. And in doing so, you make void the word of God by your tradition that you have traditioned, you've handed down and many such things you do. So this is one example Jesus gives, many such things. So what he shows here is how these traditions of the scribes and the prophets, all of these commandments they've set around the law actually have a way of undercutting the scriptures themselves. And he gives the, the example of what we could call the Corbin loophole here. So what he says is, you know, this idea of you looking over all of your property and all of your resources, what you have and saying, this is Corbin, this belongs to God, would be a way of then, in, in the scribes and Pharisees perspective, limiting it from being given to anyone that might have need of it because it's set apart for God. But it was actually a way of protecting your own self-interest. So by labeling all that you have as Corbin, you undercut the commands to not just honor or revile, but what's going on underneath that at a deeper level is caring for your parents. In particular, what Jesus is getting at is a justice issue of elderly parents who can no longer care for themselves and the responsibility of their children at this time to care for them. And the idea is being mom and dad are getting older in age and they come to their son and they ask for resources or to move in or whatever it might be to have some kind of, we cared for you. We, you know, we changed your diapers and, and you know, based off the commands of God that it's now your responsibility to care for us as we get older. And the son basically goes, sorry about that. Like I, I kind of, you know, this is all this, all this, the land, the house, all my resources, this is Corbin, this is set apart for God. What it is, is it's a interpretive gymnastics. It is a loophole that they have found in dealing with justice and love issues. So Jesus goes after it three times. He says it three ways, three times. He says, whenever you hold, you hand down, or you establish the tradition of man, you leave, you reject, and you make void the commandments of God. Jesus does not have a high opinion of this sort of interpretive gymnastics. The idea of what Jesus is doing here is he's kind of, walked into the Pharisee's room that appears all clean. The bed is made, the carpets, maybe even the carpets vacuumed. And Jesus, you know, throws up the sheets and looks under the bed or he opens up the closet. And he's saying, you didn't, you haven't cleaned your room. You've stuffed your sin. 
you have hidden away these huge jumps of actually obeying the commandments of God. And yet by the appearance of someone walking by your room, you look like you have it all together. Jesus is kind of, you've stuffed, you've stuffed, you haven't actually cleaned. Jesus would hit on this same issue later in Matthew 27, when he says, woe to you, that's the opposite of blessing. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Here it is again, hypocrites, he calls them. You are whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but inside you are full of dead bones and all kinds of impurity. Again, you appear to be righteous, but you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus sees behind the scribes and the Pharisees, their clean rooms, and sees that they are actually, you know, these whitewashed, they're actually tombs. They look beautiful. They've got it all together. But when you look underneath the bed, when you open up the closet, you realize how much impurity and selfishness and sin they've stuffed behind it all. Now that we understand Jesus's words in their context, what do they mean for us today? Two things. Two things. The first idea that Jesus is getting at here for us today is following Jesus means adjusting your life around the scriptures and not the other way around. Let me say this again. Following Jesus means adjusting your life around the scriptures and not the other way around. Now, the other way around can happen two ways. The first we see happening in this story. The first way we can adjust the scriptures around our lives is by making void the commandments of God by our additions to the scriptures. What we could call the tradition of the elders, what Jesus here calls hypocrisy, what we could refer to as legalism. Some quick examples of it beyond just the Corbin example is, and I've seen this happen, where uh, we talk a lot and we, we, want, we make all of these added applications of what it means to be a good steward of our finances. So we make up a whole fence law system of what it means to be a good steward. And then what happens is I believe Jesus would point out some of that when we then forsake caring for the poor or giving to those in need. Well, in order for me to be a good steward, and then, and then we reject I'm not saying we shouldn't be a good steward in the way that we care for the poor, but I've found in conversations with people and even in my own heart at times that that's the idea that comes to mind when it, oh, do you see that? When it subverts another commandment of scripture, my additional additions to what it means to be a good steward that are not in scripture, then make an application that actually undercuts another commandment of scripture. I hope you're seeing that. Another one would be, and we talked about this a little bit with our justice series, where we read the ideas of submitting to the governing authorities and we read that and then we put hedge commands around what that looks like beyond the true words of scripture that then undercut our ability to also enter into the prophetic vocation of acting and protesting and working with it. Do you see this? That what Jesus is saying is you need to adjust your life around how these commandments all fit together and not lift and raise others and then add on to them in a way that adjusts based off of your political perspective or your financial good or whatever it might be. See, the, the tradition of the elders continues today. Now, I said two ways that we adjust the life because there's another thing that we'll call the tradition, not of the elders, but of the youngers. The tradition of the youngers is one of making void the commandments of scripture, not through the addition, but rather through the subtraction of commandments. And this often comes, I refer to it as the youngers, as a reaction to the past generations, what they've handed down. Some good examples of this. 
If you grew up in the church or in youth groups in the early, uh, late 90s and the early 2000s, then you know all about this thing called purity culture that we were raised in. We had purity rings, we had purity dances, we had uh, all of these commands. It was this whole thing, these spoken and unspoken rules that had been built up around dating or not dating, kissing, dating goodbye, right? A perspective of sexuality, one that, that seemed to paint men as having very little self-control and women as to having all the control. And so modesty was the most important thing. As I heard growing up in youth group, modest is hottest, which seems to be a counterintuitive statement. But purity culture in many ways was a tradition of the elders. At some points, wise applications and interpretations, but what they ended up doing with so many is actually undercutting other biblical statements and beliefs. Some about the beauty of sexuality, some about the call for men to practice self-control and for women not to see their bodies or their sexuality as something wrong in need of whatevering but as something worth stewarding well. And so the ramifications go on where, you know, you have purity culture now that, that what has happened, that tradition of the elders and all of the fallout has led to a new tradition of the youngers, which instead of deconstructing the fence and getting back to the original command, have gone all the way to deconstruct the commands altogether where we have undercut and written off all of what scripture says about sexuality, about purity, about righteousness, because of the tradition of the elders that we experience in our generation. We need to be aware of this. Similarly, on the same level as we, I, I found this happening within evangelicalism, within gender as well, is in previous generations or within American evangelicalism, these whole portraits and pictures of masculinity and femininity that go beyond what the scripture has applied. And so what ends up happening is, you know, that we have a portrait of what masculinity looks like that goes beyond maybe what scripture says or femininity that goes beyond it. And instead of holding those up as really open, but still set boundaries is we had a whole generation where if I don't look exactly like this, then that means something about my lack of masculinity. If I don't look like this, then that means that my femininity and it led to all this confusion and fallout. And again, at the same level, there is now a reversal reaction within the church. Those of us still wanting to follow and be a part of the people of God, who then, instead of going back to the original commands around our gender, around our sexuality, around who we are, we undercut the whole system. I could go on with examples for days, but the idea is both the tradition of the elders and the tradition of the youngers do a sort of interpretive gymnastics so that they may adjust scripture to themselves, to their perspective and to what they see as being right. And they often are overreactions and corrections to one another. For the original Pharisees, it was looking out and seeing the lives of the Gentiles. In order we don't become like them, we need as many hedge laws added so that we don't. And even today in our generation, I know with, with me and so many of you that are kind of in my age range as well, as, an, as a reaction to what we experienced, we are no longer prone to go back to the commandments of God and adjust our lives around them, but rather we adjust all of it around ourselves because of the tradition of the elders before. There's more that can be said, but the big idea is it turns us both on whatever side you're on into a hypocrite. You are a play actor. You are not engaging and adjusting your life to the scriptures, but you are donning a mask where you get to still be the one in control. You are the one that sets the script to some degree. Following Jesus means rejecting both addition and subtraction to the scriptures 
and receiving them and adjusting our lives around them. This is what it means to follow Jesus. So that's the first one. The second thing of what it means for this text to speak to us today is following Jesus means being in an intimate relationship with God. And all that talk about adjusting our lives to the scriptures and not the other way around, don't miss this. God's priority is not and has never been just or only or solely your obedience, but an intimate relationship with him. If you go back to verse six, did you notice the key issue for Jesus in all of this when he quotes from Isaiah 29? What is it? Their their lips honor me, but their hearts are far from me. For Jesus in all of the religion, all of the adding on, all of the Pharisees, whether the tradition of the youngers or the elders, at the end of the day, the heart of the problem is the heart. The desire of God is heart nearness. What Jesus calls abiding in me, abiding in my love, abiding in the father in John 15. And so if you come from the tradition of the elders, maybe that you're noticing yourself as being someone like that, you tend to add onto the commandments of God as a place to give you a sense of safety in your relationship with God or within the religious community. You need to hear that the end goal and what Jesus is inviting you and I to is intimacy, not earning. God's deepest desire is not for you to look and have your room all clean, but but with a loving relationship with him as your father. At the same time, those of us that are prone to the tradition of the youngers, we need to hear heart nearness, intimacy with God, abiding in the presence of Jesus, in his word, in his love, in the father, through the work of the spirit, that this sort of intimacy and heart nearness does not cancel or negate life adjustment and obedience. If you have a desire to foster and flourish any relationship, it will require that over time you get to know those individuals. So let's say if it's, if it's uh, a, a dating relationship or uh, even with, with coworkers or with your roommate, that you will over time seek to get to know what delights them, what annoys, that, annoys them, what enrages them, right? What makes them laugh? Because you're committed to this relationship, you wanna foster it, you wanna see the relationship flourish. And so you get to know them. And then as you get to know them, you make adjustments to your behavior, your personality even, not in a way that's false, but in a way of seeking to develop, to foster and flourish the relationship. As a simple example, my stuffing practices when it comes to cleaning. In my marriage to Aaron, it requires me to do the hard work of relearning how to truly clean and not Aaron just getting used to it. On one level, there is an adjustment for her in being married to me where she's gonna, you know, she's gotta give me grace and she knows that it's gonna take time for me to work through this. But that does not mean that I get to just sit and continue to put things in the fridge or the freezer, which I've done before. Um, Like I said, I need help with this. The foster and flourishing work is that I am so committed to this relationship that anything that gets in the way of it, I want to have such a heart nearness with this individual that I am willing to notice the things that get in the way of that relationship. And if that's true with marriage or your roommate or your coworkers, how much more is that true? Not only with God, but the one who is the creator who knows how things work best and the one who's righteous and just, how much more so? And so in all of this, Jesus is saying, yes, honor me with your lips. Yes, worship, yes, obey. But all of those things as the overflow of heart nearness. Yes, adjust your life to the scriptures, but out of a desire to be near to my heart 
to have that intimacy. These are the two things that Jesus is saying. We got one more because Jesus isn't done yet. Let's keep going. Look at me in verse 14 and 15, where Jesus now moves from talking directly to the Pharisees to the larger crowd. He says, all the people, he's called them to him again. And he says to them, hear me, all of you, and now understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into them can defile them, but it's the things that come out of a person which defile him. So Jesus now returns to the hand-washing issue, but he turns the whole debate on its head. What he says here is the problem, the problem at the center of the debate, the difference between me and the scribes and the Pharisees and the tradition of the elders is from my perspective, it is not outside in defilement, but rather an inside out defilement that's at stake. That's at the center of my perspective. Well, what's he mean? He continues in verse 17. When he entered the house and he left the big crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable. Obviously the disciples are always confused. They're always trying to figure out what Jesus is saying, like we are right now. And so they're asking, what did you mean by that? The going inside and outside, this is strange to us. And Jesus says to them, are you guys also without understanding? In the Greek, it's like, are you also so dull? Like, are you also, he's like, you guys don't see it, do you? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside, it can actually defile him. Since it doesn't go into your heart, but his stomach, and then it gets expelled. Literally in the Greek that Mark's writing in, it's literally into the the, the latrine, into the toilet. (laughs) Jesus makes potty joke. He says, think about this. The food that you eat, it doesn't go into your heart. It's not cleansing your, it goes in, it sits in the stomach for a little while and then you go into the bathroom and then the food's gone. Mark gives us another parenthetical about the weight of Jesus, what he's just said here. Thus he declared all foods clean. And then Jesus continues. It is what comes out of a person that defiles evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they are what defile a person. There's a whole sermon on the way of Jesus's statement about all foods being clean to simply look down the alleyway and point at it. This is not Jesus being anti-kosher, but what it is is him saying that the dietary laws of covenant faithfulness, what it means to belong to the people of God, are no, that, is, that food and diet are no longer the markers of that. But notice more important to the text right here of what we're driving at is though Jesus calls all foods clean, he does not call all things clean. Jesus is not here to say everything's okay, Everything's, you know, you guys open up to whatever. He has specific ideas of what actually does defile. And he gives 12 attitudes and actions as the truly defiling things. Once again, the difference between the mom clean and the dad clean. This is the dad coming in and he's pulling out from underneath the closet and behind cabinets and and under the bed saying, these are the true things that make your room dirty. And he lists them all these evil thoughts, which seems to be the thing that leads into the rest of these. Sexual immorality being the idea of um, any uh, expression of our sexuality outside of the covenant commitments that we see back in the beginning of Genesis of one man in one woman forever for life. This is what Jesus is getting at here. Anything outside of that. 
He talks about theft, which in Jesus's perspective, along with John the Baptist, that theft wasn't just me stealing from someone. Theft was also me not giving to those who are in need. He talks about murder, which Jesus actually says that there's a deeper murder of the heart, just like he's saying here, that's not just murder, but hatred and apathy. He talks about adultery, that's sleeping with someone that you know, adultery of the heart, which is actually lust. He talks about coveting, about not being, about being discontent. He talks about lying and slander and gossip, talking about people rather than to people. He talks about selfishness and foolishness, stupidity, blindness. Jesus says, these are the things that actually, they flow up out of the heart. They are what defile. Once again, Jesus hits home. The main point he's been hitting on, it seems like, is the heart of the problem is the heart. The problem is not who you bump into or what you accidentally touch while you're in the marketplace. It is rather what is coming out from within you, the internal parts of you. The heart of the problem is your heart. And then it ends. Mark hangs this inferred sweat now over the rest of his gospel. It's answered in the third point. Following Jesus means being clean from the inside out. Following Jesus means being clean from the inside out. You see, this whole passage has driven home the idea that in order for you and I and for these Pharisees and for the crowd and for the disciples to be clean as Jesus describes it, the dad clean, that means all this, this stuff in the closet and under the bed of your heart, the things that you've hidden away, to truly have that be clean, outside in will not work. The external will not be enough. The fence and hedge, the traditions are not gonna get you there. Now for the Pharisees and the scribes, it was seen in ancient washing rituals. But for us today, you can see this constantly within any form of religion. It happens in Christianity and in any other religion out there. Seeing this whole system as a basis through which I cleanse myself. I read the Bible, I get baptized, I go to church, I pray every day, I give to the poor, I pray three times at the certain hours, I, whatever religious system it might be, has these varying external components that are just other applications of ritual handwashing. That somehow me doing the external is going to purge and clean the internal. Even outside of religion, this continues in our image-obsessed moment where we consistently think that if we can present ourselves as clean, as having it together, as being right and good, if we can present that way, then actually everything that's hidden away in the closet can actually just stay back there. And so we do this through career. We do this through our parenting. We do this through social media. I mean, every single Insta Instagram influencer, whoever it is, is, is a, it's, it's a washing of the hands. It is a presenting a particular way of being set before us as a portrait and picture of something that we might be able to obtain to if we only buy this skincare product or whatever, buy their couch or whatever it might be. And the reality is that if you've ever spent any time with anybody that presents themselves that way, you see the hypocrisy. You see that it's just as hypocritical as what Jesus is getting at here. I remember back when we actually worked in our office space at the uh, spaces in Culver City, we shared our offices with TikTok. 
And so they would always have all their big influencers that would come in and be in like the cafeteria around the coffee. And so I'm, you know, working there and we're seeing these people and I would always look at the name tag and then I'd really quick kind of look up and see how many followers this person has and their net worth. And you're just like, oh my gosh, this person, you know, and I have no idea who they are. And, uh, and you just watch, you know, you flip through and you see a couple of the things and you compare what you're seeing as this presentation, whether through TikTok or Snapchat or Instagram with the person that I'm seeing right here. And it was just so interesting to see the contrast and the difference and the hypocrisy there. And as silly as that is, I may not have millions of followers and, you know, millions of dollars behind my name and I'm giving away cars or whatever, but even, even in social media, I still am able to do the same thing. Even outside of social media, even in ministry and in preaching, I am able to do the same thing. Even in your career, even in your relationships, you are capable of doing the same thing. This all, it continues in, I mean, the social dilemma uh, documentary right now talking about how our phones are insane. All of this is just an overflow of out. It's the heart that's been built into systems now of manipulating, of deceit and lying. Politics, it's all coming out of the human heart that's setting itself up in systems that continue it. I mean, I just wish at one of the debates that one of the politicians would talk about what their weaknesses are, or even more than this, the, the heresy of just saying, here's where I think the weaknesses are in my political party and where I'm coming from. But no, what is it? The debate, what you've seen is nothing more than us putting our best foot forward, all the image and all the hypocrisy even from multiple people claiming and saying things about themselves, which have, we, this is what humans do. And Jesus is calling it out. As Jesus again says in Matthew 23, woe to you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence clean the inside of the cup and the dish so that the outside may become clean as well. See, the tradition of the elders, the legalism, the religious systems, the washing the external, hoping that it will somehow clean the internal or make up for what we sense in the internal is not gonna be enough. Likewise, those of us who belong to the tradition of the youngers, we need to hear the words of Isaiah. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Their roots will decay. Their blossoms will blow away like dust for they have rejected the instruction of the Lord and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. On both sides, there is a revelation of the hypocrisy of the human heart and the heart of the problem is your heart. And so we cannot add enough commands to make up for the darkness inside of us. And we also cannot interpret and explain them away to merely say that they somehow belong to the will of God. On both sides, our hearts need to be washed. Like Jesus is calling for here. But the question is how? How can we do that? Well, throughout to summarize basically, you know, this, uh, the reality is you can't. You cannot, is the whole point. You can't, just like you can't see your own heart and be alive, you cannot wash your own heart and make it through it. And I'm not talking physically about your heart. I'm talking about the internal territory of your own soul that is at some level so unconscious and deep-seated that you don't even know that it's there. You don't have the ability to clean it. You can't but someone can. Ezekiel 36, the prophet writes on behalf of the Lord God, where he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, Israel, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. All your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart. Hmm. 
and a new spirit I will put within you. I'm gonna remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I'm gonna take out that hard heart that you have. And I'm gonna give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart, a living heart. And I'm gonna put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You will be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. You see, Ezekiel's promise here is he's saying that the cleanness that Jesus calls for, a heart depth cleanliness is actually possible. But Ezekiel says it's only gonna come from God doing it himself through taking out the filth of our heart and giving us a new heart and then filling us with his Holy Spirit so that we might be able to carefully obey his rules. And so, like I said, Mark has hung this weight over us moving through the gospel of Mark to be answered later in the cross and the death and the resurrection of Jesus as the very place where all of this surprisingly happens. For those who come in faith and trust and allegiance and love to Jesus, a desire for heart nearness to the God who can actually do something about their heart. The cross is the place where God fulfills this Ezekiel 36 promise where our filth was made on him so that we might become the righteousness of God. He was marred and bruised and broken as the the just place of where all of our brokenness takes us so that we might in him be put back together. We might be cleaned as he calls us to. And even more after Jesus' resurrection from death, his ascension to the right hand of the father, he sends his Holy Spirit into us. Again, fulfilling what Ezekiel was praying and hoping for that we might be empowered, not trying from the outside in, but from the inside out, from a new heart and the spirit within us. So that in all of it, the reversal of what Jesus said in verse 21 may be true. We'll close with this. This is the sort of thing that Jesus is calling us towards. This is what it means to be truly clean. For from within, out of the washed heart of the spirit come good thoughts, sexual purity, generosity, justice, commitment, contentment, righteousness, honesty, self-control, kindness, encouragement, humility, and a heart that is close to God. If this is the sort of person that you want to become, this whole passage is saying, it's not gonna work for you to act like these things. It's not gonna work for you to try to get your way into this. It is going to require you having a new heart and a new spirit and the work of Jesus, that's precisely what's available to us today. Let's pray.